Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I've got Kate with me today. Hello, Kate. How are you doing? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. Cooler than many people at the moment, I believe. Look, look, don't you sit there and start getting smug with us. Um, so we're recording this uh, in the midst of that heat wave in which everybody's saying that Britain basically burnt to a cinder and there's nothing left and apparently we're all dead. Um, so up until that moment where I get the memo that we are in fact all dead um, and have been reduced to puddles, uh, we're going to keep going with History Hack because, hey, we might as well keep you entertained as the world crumbles. Who are we talking to today and why is this one going to be particularly fun? So today we are talking to Simon Forder, who's an historian and author and an expert on castles. I love castles, so I'm very excited um, to speak to Simon today. He's also the author of Fortress Scotland, Edinburgh Castle and the Romans in Scotland and the Battle of Mons Graupius. And I do apologise if I've pronounced that terribly. Um, so perhaps, Simon, you'd like to correct my awful pronunciation. No, that Mons Graupius is correct. That's fine. Fantastic. I, I must admit, when I was researching this one, I was like going through all the, the names and various words and thinking like, gosh, I need to check how to pronounce some of these things. <laughs> it's Latin. Right. It's bound to be tough. We've all been there. Well, it, it is. They are Latin words, but uh, a rough guideline is that if you work on an Italian pronunciation, then you're probably going to be OK. Ah, cool. Interesting. I don't speak Italian, so <laughs> I speak Spanish. Is that close enough? <laughs> It'll do. It'll do. <laughs> It'll do. So, in general terms, I mean, we're going to focus today on the Romans in Scotland. In general terms, how much presence do the Romans have in Scotland? And I'm thinking, kind of, in comparison to the rest of Europe, because we think of it very much as the sort of the borderland. I was talking to. Uh, Simon Elliott the other day, who was describing Britain as kind of the Wild West of the Roman period, which I thought was a great metaphor. So if you're on the fringe of the Wild West, that, that sounds like a, a place which is, is not kind of the centre of Roman control. So how much presence is there? How much projection of power is there compared to other parts of the empire? Well, the, the short version is that um, the, the northern half of Britain um, was very much a militarized zone. Um, there were uh, some settlements that um, could be categorized as Roman towns of a sort, um, but by and large, they were side effects of the military presence. So everywhere where the army had a, a temporary or a, per, a permanent garrison, 
there would be uh, small settlements would grow up that supplied the needs of the army and of the garrison. Um, and so we, we really ought to think um, that Simon Elliott's description is pretty accurate because the, the military were the predominant force. Um, and that meant that you had no socialization um, in real terms. There were no, uh, no great Roman cities with bathhouses and all the facilities that um, people in the empire elsewhere would have uh, recognized as being truly Roman. And it was also the case that in, uh, in terms of worship, uh, the the military gods and goddesses were the the main things that were that appeared, um, and quite often in uh, the inscriptions that we find in the northern half of Britain and Scotland are either military uh, gods and goddesses, uh, or they they would almost um, acquire the the local gods and goddesses and incorporate them into their their worship. So. Everything to do with the army, with military, with soldiers, uh, with patrols going out and uh, trying to dominate and harass the natives is what we would think of. Um, but the and in that regard, it was very much a case that it was similar to no other part of the empire. Um, all the way along the, the Rhine frontier, the Danube frontier, um, all the way along the, uh, the frontier over in the Middle East and across North Africa. Um, it was the case that there were these large settlements, that it was m much more a, a Mediterranean and imperial feel. Uh, now, one of the things that I, I actually did earlier this week uh, is I went out to um, an archaeological dig at a quarry um, about four or five miles from Elgin, which is right up near Inverness in the north of Scotland. Um, and what they've found is evidence of industrial scale iron smelting. Um, and what that is basically an example of is local entrepreneurs choosing to become suppliers of raw materials to the army um, because there is no other no other centralized um, organization in the north of Scotland that would have any need for high-grade iron and the the dating evidence that they have found at that site is very much consistent with the the second half of the first century AD for perhaps a century or so um, and that coincides very, very nicely with the, the presence of the Roman army in Scotland. And as soon as the army withdrew, they pulled the bottom out of that particular market. Uh, all of a sudden, the entrepreneurs had nobody to sell their, their high-grade iron to, and they abandoned the site. And um, in the archaeology that they're digging up, they're finding uh, very high-value um, raw iron ore, along with unused charcoal, all of which was very, very expensive. It required time and effort to produce among the local economy, um, but they just, they left it, uh, which indicates that the, whilst the, the army has a, a very tangible presence in terms of soldiers walking around, um, it's also the case that the wider supply chain of all the materials that the army needed was also a a physical presence in terms of the the border region. So we can we can learn quite a lot from archaeological sources. Um, what other sources are there that tell us about the time that the Romans were in Scotland? There aren't very many, to be honest. The there's a, a very famous um, piece of writing produced by Tacitus, which is the autobiography of his father-in-law, uh, Gnaeus Julius Agricola, and he was a a Roman general and the, the governor of the province of Britannia. Um, and the, autobiogra the autobiography that Tacitus produces is basically telling us of all the activities, all the campaigns, all the things that his father-in-law did. Um, and whilst he may not be the, the most reliable written resource um, in terms of uh, the Roman Empire as a whole, for Scotland, he's pretty much it for this period. 
Um, we have no mention prior to Tatastus at all, other than occasional references to Caledonia, to uh, the King of the Orcades, which uh, is mentioned in um, ref with reference to the Emperor Claudius. Um, but really, it's just a case of there are, apart from Tacitus, there is very, very little telling of what events were going on. Um, there's just occasional references to the barbarians did this or the, the Picts did that. Um, and beyond that, there isn't very much at all. Uh, it's only after that, when and we're talking towards the, uh, the latter period of the, the Roman involvement in Scotland, that a, a geographer called Ptolemy um, produced a, a document which is called the Geography. Uh, and that geography describes um, a list of places which are largely um, the, they largely correlate with the Roman forts, the permanent occupation uh, of the area, together with um, geographical features on the coastline. And he then cross-references that with um, the names of tribes of people. Uh, now, that really is all that we have. So when we're looking beyond archaeology, and we then look at Tacitus as potentially something we need to treat with uh, a great deal of care, we really are looking at a very, very fragmentary record. Well, that leads us very nicely into where we wanted to go next with this, which is Tacitus himself. Um, and you, you talk about, you know, kind of the, you know, Tacitus, Tacitus has been accepted for a long time as the knowledge. But, but as you're kind of saying, you know, what, what's being found uh, in, a, in a more tangible sense is disproving a lot of, of what is said by Tacitus. So why was he accepted at, as being accurate for so long? Is it kind of just a, a lack of alternative information? To a degree, yes. I mean, the, the, the main story of Tacitus is that uh, he, he describes a seven or eight year period when his father-in-law was the governor. There is no other example anywhere in imperial history and in uh, gubernatorial history that describes the career of a senior member of Rome's civil service. Um, and what we have with Tacitus is a story that tells of an advance into Scotland and a retreat. Uh, and the even as early as the 18th century, uh, General Roy um, recorded known Roman sites in Scotland. Um, and the as time progressed over the, the next 150 years or so, it was very, very clear that the general context of what Tacitus wrote of advance, short occupation, and retreat was it was very closely matched by this archaeological evidence in terms of the, the marching camps that existed. Um, and because of this, and because there wasn't anybody else who was contradicting what he was saying, um, with regards to the Agricola, which is the, the, the autobiography that he wrote, nobody really had any reason to challenge him. And it's only in more recent years as we the, the science of archaeology has developed and things are able to be dated with more accuracy. People are able to, um, to see uh, in a lot more detail what a, a camp was. We are able to, to actually date camps in different phases um, and different types. That it started to become clear that there were inconsistencies. Um, and an, an example would be um, that he he would describe a, a particular event and he would say, this is what happened. The barbarians did this. This was the response of Agricola and the Romans did this. And then Agricola was victorious and this is the reason for it. And everybody thought Agricola was a great guy. Now, Tacitus was writing perhaps 15, 20 years after his father-in-law's death. Uh, and he was also writing in, a, in the reign of uh, the Emperor Trajan. 
uh, Trajan had succeeded after a brief civil war, a, an individual who was widely perceived to be a tyrant, um, which was the Emperor Domitian. Um, and there was a very strong um, senatorial response to Domitian's tyranny, and that involved criticizing him. So within Tacitus, we then look at the, the, the subtext of the politics of his time, whereby he was very clearly intending to do down the emperor's decisions, which included pulling uh, Agricola back out of Scotland and abandoning all his hard work, um, and at the same time extolling the ideals of um, the, the, the senators in Trajan's time, which was good behaviour, moderation, being considered wise, being considered benevolent, never making mistakes. And within that context, you then start to see patterns whereby Tacitus is reproducing almost by rote standard tropes, I guess, of the imperial period, which when you then take those standardizations of wording and events out of it, they start to pull apart um, the story that he is telling and leave it with some very, very telling holes. And um, that causes us to ask questions about his overall reliability. Um, of course, it's still the case that he's the only written resource that we have from that time, which means that whilst we have to challenge him, we also have to work within the general guidelines of all of the other information we have. We can't just go on a Tacitus demolishing exercise without having the arguments to back it up. So we've we've touched a couple of times on um, buildings, the Romans sort of left behind and evidence of buildings. What sort of buildings would they have built and why? Can you tell us a bit more about sort of the purpose and, and construction of these buildings? Yeah, absolutely. That principally, we we need to categorise the the presence of Roman structures in Scotland as either being temporary or permanent. Um, and we on in that first category, we have uh, the the temporary marching camps, and these traditionally have been uh, described as things that the the Roman legions dug up overnight. They dug a ditch. They threw all the earth on the inside to form a bank. And then they stuck timber um, fence all the way around the top, uh, and they then set up a uh, an army, a kind of infantry camp full of leather tents. Um, now, traditionally, again, it's been the case that these have been presumed to mark very, very short periods of occupation, where the army enter a place, they dig their camp, they stay there for a couple of days, a week at most, absolutely trash the landscape around them and then move on as part of a process of conquest um, and that to a certain extent that is true however the time frame of occupation has been now proven to be anything up to three or four months um, so rather than it being a case of the, the marching camps being very short-term military occupation uh, they also then used as part of the process of dominating and exploiting and overawing the, the the surrounding countryside um, and the overwhelming majority of these uh, marching camps there is nothing at all left of them apart from crop marks um, because they were used for one season abandoned and when the the army came back the next time they could have had less soldiers they could have had more cavalry so they whilst they may reuse the site they then just redesign it um, yeah and against that, we have the, the permanent structures. In Scotland, the majority of that falls into the category of a fort, a garrison fort. Um, and these were much, much smaller um, buildings. They, they form an enclosure that probably uh, falls into the category of maybe a dozen acres or so. Uh, it would be defended with multiple ditches and banks, and it would have stone walls around the perimeter instead of timber um, and within this they would build uh, barrack blocks they would build granaries there would be a uh, a central headquarters for that um, for that fort which would contain the commanding officers personal um, 
residence. It would contain uh, the fort's temple where the uh, the legion's standards and so on were stored for, for good luck. Um, and it would contain, normally it would contain some form of bathing um, as well as potentially stables and granaries. Uh, and out, these forts would be occupied for dozens of years. Uh, the intention would be that they would be permanent occupation, um, but the, the nature of warfare in Scotland meant that they could be abandoned after 10, 15 years and then reoccupied three or four years later when the army returned. Um, outside of that, um, those forts, we have small um, settlements built up called Viki, um, which are villages that contain... Um, you know things that the uh, the soldiers might want on their on their nights off. There would be potentially they might have uh, families there. They might have other ladies of leisure who serve their needs. They might have inns. They might have takeaway restaurants because the the Romans actually did street food quite well. Uh, and they would probably be a, a marketplace of some sort where people from the surrounding area would bring their wares to to sell to the army um, and this would largely be raw material because the army itself contained its own uh, craftsmen to repair the tents, to repair the armour and all this, but they didn't necessarily have the skill set to produce the iron, to produce and cure the leather and all of this kind of stuff. So we would be talking about um, very, very small settlements outside garrison forts um, and the garrison forts had people who they could spend their entire 25 years as a legionary working within the fort and going out on patrol and they could even be drawn from the the native populations um, and certainly there within scotland we also have one example of a legionary fortress um, which was started uh, and this would have contained um, the it would have become the provincial capital in time of North Britain um, and they they started building this they excavated they started uh, digging all the foundations for massive numbers of buildings to service the needs of anything up to 10,000 military personnel including the the service people who worked alongside the soldiers um, but that was then abandoned uh, and the Romans withdrew from that area um, and they buried tons upon tons. And I'm talking literally tons of iron nails um, that had great value. They clearly intended to return and finish off building, but they, they never did. Um, can we so, know why uh, or can we speculate why? Why was it abandoned or why did they yeah. not return? Or why either, um, both. <laughs> well, it, it comes back to this uh, delightful tyrant, Domitian. Um, and he, he basically had a problem in that there was substantial um, rebellion and uh, warfare running along the uh, East European boundary, which was the River Rhine and the River Danube. And what he needed to do was he needed to reorganize the garrisons and the legions across the empire in order to counter this uh, substantial military threat. Um, because when we think about uh, Eastern Europe, we don't really think about it as being particularly close to Rome and Italy. Um, but the, the lower Danube, we're talking in what's now Bulgaria and Romania, um, if you had a, a hostile army across the Danube, and the Romans built bridges across the, the Danube, they could, within a week, easily be inside Italy. Mm. Uh, so what Domitian did, quite rationally, was to say, this, this thing that we've got going on in Scotland, I really need those 10,000 men. I need those men over on the Danube. So what we'll do is we'll pull them out of Scotland into York. The legion that's in York will pull south into, into the south of England, and the legion in the south of England will send into into France and over onto the continent to mm. defend the empire's borders. Because people in Rome, who of course were, uh, there were quite a lot of them in comparison, 
they were much more likely to see barbarians crossing the Danube and coming into provinces that they may have even got trading relationships with as a bigger threat than mm. something in the far north of Scotland. And when Domitian had done that, it was basically the case that the the war carried on um, and the the legions were never sent back, certainly not in volumes that were big enough to warrant reoccupying the, the legionary fortress site. So let's talk about one of the, the big ones, if you will, the one everybody knows about. We're going to be predictable. We have to talk about Hadrian's Wall, right? You know, it's, it's the one that... You talk about Scotland, you talk about the Romans, everybody goes, oh yeah, Hadrian's Wall, that was built to keep the Scots out because the Scots weren't popular with the Romans. It's a big defensive barrier, but it's not quite right, is it? There's, there's a bit more going on there. So what kind of purpose did the wall actually serve and how effective was it in fulfilling that purpose? My understanding is it's some kind of tax barrier. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Broadly speaking, yes. Um, I mean, I, I've said how Domitian pulled the troops out of Scotland um, and he pulled them right back to an old frontier line uh, called the Staingate. Um, and the Staingate was basically a, a sequence of uh, forts and camps and earthworks that was built along the line that Hadrian's Wall now occupies. And it was always intended at that point to be a temporary structure while they consolidated land behind it. Now, Trajan really didn't have a great deal to do with Scotland, and it was his uh, adoptive son, Hadrian, who then took over after him. So we're talking maybe 25, 30 years after uh, Scotland had been abandoned by Domitian. Now, what had happened, and there, there is a, a, a grey area here, but what had happened was there, there appears to have been a substantial influx of barbarians um, from north of the Staingate into northern England, as it is now. And the, the Romans appear to have suffered a fairly substantial military defeat at that time. Um, but true to all propagandists, um, they, they never really told anybody about it. So Hadrian had been asked by the governor to come to Britannia to look at the border and to bring the imperial presence in all its might and glory uh, to overawe the area. Pardon me, the area. So he did that. He came with his master masons. He came with his dancing girls. He came with everything that Rome had to offer to, to make themselves look splendid. Um, and he elected to say, right, this is where the Roman province ends. So a tax barrier is, to a degree, what it was about, because anything that came from outside the province coming through Hadrian's Wall into Britannia proper would therefore be taxed. And anything that was being traded outside of the empire with the, the tribes beyond could be monitored as well. But it was more of a symbolic statement than anything else. It was Hadrian saying, this is where the empire stops. There is nothing beyond it but blue-painted barbarians. Um, now, in terms of its effectiveness, 
as a military barrier, it was utterly ineffective because it was the army itself and the legions and the garrisons that occupied Hadrian's Wall that were the critical thing. Um, there was a demilitarized zone to the north and to the south where only the soldiers were allowed to be, apart from the few roads that then passed through the wall through certain places and allowed scouting parties, traders and anybody else who wanted to, to go into the, uh, the lands to the north of Hadrian's Wall. And as soon as there was any kind of major uprising north of Hadrian's Wall, it became very clear that it was easily overrun and it was repeatedly overrun throughout the, the remaining 300, 350 years of Roman history in Britain. Um, and, you know, it's also the case that um, the when Scotland was a, uh, a nation of these uh, so-called blue-painted barbarians, they also had ships, they had boats, they traded with Ireland, they traded north with Orkney, with Shetland, they traded across the North Sea with uh, Scandinavia. And that meant that when you have a nice stone wall running from one side of the country to the other, all that it took to mount a successful invasion was to sail around the end of it. You know, you could... You could just get your boat, a few thousand troops on it, maybe a couple of hundred uh, small boats. You sail around, you go into uh, the, the lower lying lands of the Lake District, um, and you could just raid and pillage as your mind took you. Going the east side, you, you had the, the River Tyne, you had the River Tees, you have the Humber, all of these major rivers that lead straight from the coast into the heartland of the province. So from that point of view, it didn't function as a military barrier in any way, shape or form. It is purely the case that the military garrisoned it. The soldiers were there and that's what made it a military structure. Um, and, you know, was it possible to for it to function as a, a proper tax point? Not really, for the same reason. You could just sail a boat around the other end. Um, and unless you have a, uh, a very effective customs force around the entire coastland of Britannia, um, which, of course, they didn't, um, it would be very difficult to stop the, the black market from operating exactly as it wanted to. So for me, it's very much a case of the, the symbolism of saying this is where the empire stops um, and beyond it you are not part of the empire it, it's almost a case of further north than that they weren't worthy um but of course all the time you have small groups of soldiers probably uh, bands of a couple of hundred at a time going out on patrol uh, and monitoring the the lands to the north probably as much as 15 20 miles beyond the wall um and the the other thing to bear in mind is that when we look at the archaeological record of um, the, the earlier period of conquest, um, there is very little evidence, particularly along the eastern side of the country. So we're talking the, uh, the Berwickshire and East Lothian area. There's very little evidence of any um, warfare. There are marching camps, um, but it would appear that the locals in those areas were perfectly happy to commit to alliances and trading alliances in particular with the, with Rome, with the, the province. So they, they were never a hostile uh, group anyway, which means that you potentially have more of a problem in the, the central area over the Pennines and over towards Dumfries and Galloway. And if that is the case, we're talking about a military strategy, why would you have a military strategy covering the entirety of that border when a third of the uh, the boundary could well have been with friendly nation. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. 
in nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Um, and Hadrian's wasn't the only wall the Romans built, was it? Can you tell us about the other wall that they built in Scotland? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, the, the, the wall that also exists in Scotland is the Antonine Wall. Um, and the Antonine Wall is a much, much shorter structure. Um, it goes from the, uh, the River Forth across to the uh, River Clyde. Um, so we're talking in between Edinburgh and Glasgow, for those not hugely familiar with Scottish geography. Um, and that's probably about 35 or 40 miles. Um, it's very, very, very heavily populated with forts. Um, and the army occupied that in very large numbers and in a very high density. Um, and they could certainly occupy it far easier as a defensive frontier than Hadrian's Wall, which was maybe three or four times as long to the south. Um, and the reason it happened was because Hadrian's Wall proved indefensible and non-functional when there were invasions. Um, after, I mean, after Hadrian died, uh, we have a, another period whereby there are great barbarian uprisings along the, the Danube, along the Rhine in particular. And there are, again, many references to the wall, quote and unquote, being crossed by barbarians in the province of Britain, Britannia being raided. Now, given that was the case, given that at least one of the major tribes to the north of the wall was actually a friendly allied tribe, it made sense for the emperor Antoninus Pius to move the frontier north again and to say, right, we are going to defend north of this. We are going to put a boundary here that we can defend against these raiding people coming down. Uh, and this was occupied on two separate occasions. They, it was occupied by Antoninus Pius, uh, and it was then abandoned after maybe 10, 11 years. Um, and the frontier was drawn back down to Hadrian's Wall. It was then reoccupied again about another 20 years later, uh, and then finally abandoned a second time. Um, and the, the wall itself, wall is a misnomer because there was never a wall as such. Um, the structure of the Antonine Wall and all of the forts on it is entirely earthen timber. Um, you have massive, massive ditches and uh, banks uh, that go across from one river to the other. They were probably crowned with uh, a, a, a timber palisade of sharpened logs. Um, the, the forts themselves, again, you have what we see today are ditches and banks, um, maybe two or three sets around a, a fort that contained maybe 500 men. Um, and there is no evidence whatsoever at any point along Hadrian's Wall of there being any stone buildings. So whether it was the case that the intention was eventually for this to be uh, restructured in stone, or whether it was entirely a military response to hostility to just basically make the invading um, Caledonians make their lives a little more difficult. We can't really tell at this point. Um, and over and above the, the wall itself, there are maybe six or seven permanent forts that exist north of Hadrian's Wall, going up um, as far as Perth, and possibly one beyond that, whereby these forts were reoccupied at the same time as the wall. So the Antonine Wall itself is a, a distinct feature in the landscape, but it was part of a wider frontier system um, of occupation that the Romans used at that point in time. I'm going to switch tacks slightly and, and take us a little bit back to Tacitus again, because one of the things that comes up in your book is 
Battle of Mons Gropius, I'm going to go with. Gropius. Okay. Uh, Yep. Okay. I stand corrected. Not surprised. My Latin was awful. Um, (laughs) Now, Tacitus says that there's there's this great kind of sweeping victory, but I gather that we might have reason to question his accuracy. So talk us through what's supposed to have happened and the the reasons why there's evidence to, to suggest that you know that that's not the case okay i shall uh, to a certain extent with uh, tacitus there is a degree of tabloidism in what he says so what i will the way that i will explain what his version of the story is may be seen as a little bit tabloid um, but that is because it's how the guy wrote now in effect what he said is that After four or five years um, of steadily advancing northwards from England into Scotland, um, the the Scots, uh, who he refers to as the Caledonii, um, were getting very frustrated with with the constant aggravation by the Roman forces. So they decided to form a grand alliance of tribes um, to oppose the the Romans, um, and Tacitus got wind of uh, Agricola got wind of this. Sorry, uh, and he uh, got an army together uh, and marched northwards. And uh, as he went, uh, he had the the navy supporting him, um, and eventually they they found this um, this camp uh, campsite that they felt was appropriate. And they they got themselves all set up for the night. And when they got up in the morning, they could see the massed thousands and thousands of Caledonian savages ranked up on the slopes of the mountain in front of them, uh, all baying for Roman blood. Uh, So what Agricola does is he gives this very stirring um, Braveheart style speech to the, uh, the Roman troops, talking about what it is that they are. Uh, fighting for for Roman decency, for their family, for the dignity of the empire, for the glory of um, the the emperor, and so on. And that what do these barbarians have anyway? They have marshes. They have uh, they they live in the bogs. They they eat their their children. They marry their cattle. You know any any kind of nonsense that he could put into this speech, vilifying the barbarians. Um, Tacitus puts into his father-in-law's mouth and he then tells that uh, the the leader of the Scots, uh, a gentleman by the name of Calgacus, uh, which just means swordsman, um, gave an equally stirring speech to the Caledonians and said about how the Romans were taking away their freedom and how they were going to be slaves and that they were fighting for their homelands and, and so on. And after this, the very civilized uh, exchange of speeches to their troops, uh, the Romans uh, set themselves up um, and sent in the the auxiliaries, who were the non-Roman citizen soldiers, to fight the um, the, the Caledonians. Uh, the Caledonians then fought very bravely, um, causing Agricola to have to send in some additional cavalry, who were also not Roman citizens. Um, and they basically utterly destroyed the Caledonian advance, uh, and the the Caledonians then fled into the the bogs and the forests, and the Romans were totally victorious. Um, and he, you know, within that story, Tacitus gives us numbers that emphasise exactly how many tens of thousands of Caledonians there were, and and this kind of. Uh, emphasis on what a great victory his father-in-law had actually uh, managed to inflict on these savages. After which they they all tidied up and he awarded his troops with uh, various decorations of valour um, and he then sent uh, a group of people further north to take um, hostages and make agreements with the, uh, with the, the savages and the tribes further north. Um, and after which uh, his victory was so complete and so spectacular that our, our dear emperor tyrant Domitian got jealous and um, with 
that basically called him back to Rome and put him into an, an honourable retirement of uh, ignominy. So that that is the story that Tacitus actually tells. Um, but there are numerous um, issues associated with that. So, I mean, it's possible that the Battle of Mons Graupius didn't even happen, or at least didn't happen as we've sort of always, in inverted commas, believed. Um, so what do you think did happen? How, how do you think it, it really went down? I think that there was a battle. I mean, it, it is the case that um, some people are inclined to utterly disregard Tacitus as utterly unreliable. Um, but that although Agricola himself was dead uh, by the time he wrote, um, there were senior senators um, of great, great standing who had previously been involved in fighting in Britain. Um, and there were people who could basically pull his story apart if he created the whole thing and made the whole thing up. Um, now, when look when looking at the the detail of what it was that he says, um, what I did was I, I cross-referenced the, the numbers. I looked at how infantry camps were set up, how many people could occupy a square, an acre of land when they were in the 18th century and so on. And the whole idea was to, to try and work out whether any of the temporary marching camps across Scotland altogether as a whole, that had been identified so far, could possibly match the criteria of a marching camp as described by Tacitus. Yeah, because there's some um, discussion of where as well, isn't there? I probably should have asked that as well, that, that there's a, a kind of a nobody really knows where. Absolutely. So, yeah, please tell us where you think it happened as well. Oh, I, I will do. I will do. <laughs> um, I mean, the so the, the problem that I that I had was I looked at the numbers and the the numbers of soldiers that Tacitus describes as being present at the battle does not match with any known sequence of marching camps. Um, and what that means is that either um, the army of the Romans was far bigger or much smaller than Tacitus would have us believe. Uh, the next thing that I did was I looked at the the few description de, uh, geographical descriptions that Tacitus puts into his account of the battle, um, such as the Romans being able to see uh, the um, the Caledonians rank upon rank climbing up the uh, the slope in front of them. Um, there's no mention at all that in any of the uh, the account that Tacitus puts together that there was a river of any significance on on or near the battle site. Um, and when I put all of this together, there was no exact match. Um, in order for a an army the size that Tacitus describes to fight a battle such as Tacitus describes, there's nowhere that fits, nowhere at all. Um, but given that um, a battle probably took place, um, we, we then have to say, well, okay, so if none of them match exactly, what, how close can we get? Um, and numerous people have done this over the years um, and have come up with various uh, favoured um, locations for the battle. Um, and the the location that I, I came to the conclusion fitted most closely uh, is just south of Perth. Um, there are a number of marching camps in this area. Um, Perth itself um, was the, the site of a, a permanent uh, garrison fort that was established um, at around about this time. Um, and there is a, a nice hill um, that matches the the description um, that Tacitus gives, uh, as well as there being sufficient space for a large pitched battle to have taken place. Now, I'm not saying that it's perfect because it's not, um, that, but there is no perfect location for any camp that we found so far. Um, and the one of the things that does make it quite uh, compelling to me 
is that there there is a hill um, just south of uh, of Perth called Moncrief Hill, uh, and when you look at Moncrief Hill, it is a very prominent feature in the landscape, um, and it is conceivable uh, that the the actual name given to um, to the the hill, the mountain, and the battle, which is Mons Graupius, is actually a it has come down in corrupt form as Moncrief Hill. Um, so I'm inclined to to think that a, a good match for the location of the battle is around Moncrief, south of Perth. Although I think that the battle itself may have been fought either around about the, the site of the city or to the, the south of the River Urn um, in uh, an area around Abernethy, which was of great religious significance to the, the early Scots. Um, so I, I think that a battle probably did take place. I think it was probably smaller scale than Tacitus would have us believe. Um, and it almost certainly was some kind of uh, draw whereby there was, there was a battle. Um, neither side came off particularly well, um, but the, the Romans being more organized uh, were seen as being too big a threat for the, um, for the, the Caledonians that came to fight them. Um, and the, the other aspect that particularly interested me is a question of the timing of the whole thing. Um, and the, the timing, as described by Tacitus, is that it happened in the late summer and autumn. Um, and that is because he describes how Agricola's, uh, news of Agricola's son's death came to Agricola. Uh, and he then went into a very stoic and uh, approved period of mourning. And uh, it was the, the idea of battle that got him out of it to a certain extent. Um, and with the idea being that it was fought in late summer or autumn, uh, it does seem quite feasible that a, a large raiding party uh, came down into the much more fertile landscape around Perth in order to burn, destroy, or steal the harvest. Um, because even back then, there was the ability uh, in lowland Perthshire for um, agriculture to flourish and for crops to be grown. Um, and, of course, to, to remove the, the grain, um, which a substantial proportion of that was probably supplied to the army for their food, would actually strike quite a nasty blow against the, the legions in Scotland. So that's what I think happened. I think it was a battle. I think it was probably much more inconclusive than would be led to believe. Um, but the Romans were the ones who were able to leave the, leave the field with their heads held slightly higher. Sadly, we're out of time which is a real shame because I oh. could keep asking you questions about this for the rest of the afternoon. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. You're uh, very welcome. The Romans in Scotland, the Battle of Mons Gropius. There we go. I've learned to pronounce it properly now. <laughs> Folks, it's available. You know all the usual things about where you can get it and me encouraging you to go direct to the publisher. I'll spare you the rant. Please do go buy the book. And Simon, thank you so much for your time. Make sure you come back and talk to us about some of the other work you've done. And we we'll look course. forward to, to chatting again very soon. Okay. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.